Welcome back to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Today's guest is radio legend and my first boss in radio, John Records Landecker. Thank you for joining me today, John. You're very welcome. Full disclosure, I was your intern. You took me under your wing. You taught me how to do a talk show, a DJ, be a radio personality. Thank you for getting this crazy career started. Your middle name was not a stage name. Your mom's maiden name was Records, was given to you at birth. Tell us a little bit about everyone's disbelief that that is actually your name. My mother's name was Marjorie Victoria Records. And when I was born, they just decided to give me that as the middle name, and that that really is it. There's no big story or anything. It's not like, let's give birth to a disc jockey and we'll name him Records. That's it, really. Let's talk about the beginning of your radio career. You began your radio career while in high school at a station in Ann Arbor, Michigan. At what age did you realize you wanted to work in radio? Oh, gosh. I mean, I don't, I don't really remember a time when I didn't want to work in radio. When I was in elementary school, I pretended to have a radio station in a little corner of my room, and I read a book called This Is Your Announcer, and I made up fake call letters and wrote them on the albums that I had. That just continued on and on. As a hobby, I would build these cigar box radios with a crystal diode in it. you get a cigar box, and a crystal diode at the electronic store, plus some wire and some really cheap headphones. And the crystal diode radio has no on-off switch. You can't tune it, and it has no volume control. So what you do, you just string this big, long wire. And if you got something, you got something. And if you didn't, you didn't. And... That's what I did for fun, along with sports and things like that when I was a little kid. But I always wanted to do the radio thing. We will get to your college career in a second, but everyone who's worked in radio has had people on the air who influenced them. Who were some of your earlier radio heroes? These would all be in around the Detroit area, most specifically two gentlemen named Joel Sebastian and Lee Allen were amongst the early influences. And then... When I got a little bit older, I found Chicago Radio, and Ron Britton was a huge influence. You began your college career at Grand Valley State University, and you worked in Grand Rapids, and then you went to Michigan State. You worked in Lansing, you worked in Philadelphia, and then you became the evening jock on WLS 890 in Chicago. What was it like in the early 70s without a lot of management oversight for a young radio jock? Well, there was a ton of radio oversight. It was the first job I had. They changed my name to Scott Walker and had a very specific, oh gosh, way of doing a format. And you had to submit the day before your show what music you were going to play. The program director would call the person on the air if he felt something was wrong on a hotline, and the hotline would trigger, like not a sun lamp, but a very large light in the corner, upper corner of the uh, studio. And the ha-ha joke was that everybody at the station, all the jacks at the station had sunburn on half of their face because this guy was continually calling the hotline. 
And they were sort of true. His name was Paul Drew, and wherever he went, he would go with a small transistor and an earphone in his ear, even to dinner, to parties, socializing, the grocery store, probably the bathroom at least. Well, no, you'd have a radio in there. You know, I mean, he had it on all the time. And boy, if he heard there was something wrong, and he always did, he'd call. I mean, it was the strictest format I've ever been in. And it freaked me out. I was going to Michigan State and got this job offer. Oh, this tremendous job offer. Oh, this is unbelievable. You don't get a job like this when you're a senior in college. Yada, 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 yada. I was also married and had a kid. And I went to Philadelphia early to sort of like train and things like that and go on the air and get used to it. And there was a handbook of instructions. And I was sitting alone. My wife and daughter hadn't come yet. I remember being at this motel and breaking down and starting to cry and thinking, I'll never be able to do this. Fortunately for me, the this dictatorial program director, for some reason, didn't fire me. I mean, he was known for, okay, you're done, next. You know, I mean, the jocks were really like tinker toys or something. They were replaceable, and I was easily replaceable, but he didn't do it. I worked just about every shift. I was hired to do nine to midnight, and then they realized that I wasn't very good, and instead of firing me, he gave me midnight to 6 a.m., six nights a week. That went on for a while, and then the station was sold, and the new owners came in, and they asked me what I what did I want to do, and I said, well, I I would like to be John Records Landecker, and they said okay, and another personality named Joey Reynolds came with the package, and he was and is a very good friend of mine and the most talented person I've ever heard on the radio, and he was just like total personality. I mean, it was one day we're one side of the spectrum, the next day we're completely on the other side. And when we did the new format, I went on the air and started criticizing Scott Walker and would get phone calls. Hey, don't you pick on Scott Walker? We like him. Yeah, well, he's gone. <laughs> So I was, you know, literally talking about myself. That's the kind of place it turned out to be, and that that really got it going because we were allowed to be personalities and have ideas, and I started making inroads against the established nighttime jock in Philadelphia at the competitor, WFIL, and that attracted some, unbeknownst to me, it attracted some attention across the country, really. And the way the story goes, as it's told to me, because I had no idea this was happening, is the guy at the radio station in Philadelphia called a friend of his, who was the program director of a radio station in New York, Rick Sklar, who was the program director of WABC. And they make an inquiry about a personality, and my name comes up, the WLS program director flies to Philadelphia to listen to my radio show, if you could imagine that, doing that today, because there was no way for him to hear it. He checks me out. He goes back to Chicago, and then they offer me a job. 
which I took immediately. And when I got there, he said, you can't use records as your middle name on the air. And I'm like, oh, here we go again. He was eventually let go. And the moment he was let go, I started using it and never stopped. I want to flash forward for a second. Now you're back to Chicago. You've got a young child, a wife. We have two kids, two daughters. Back then, DJs were not making Howard Stern-type money. No, but it was all relative. I mean, $35,000 in 1972, I don't know what that equates to in today's climate, but nobody was a pauper in the major markets. And when I went to uh, WIBG in Philadelphia, I did have to join AFTRA, the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, because they were a union shop. And so was WLS. And at that time, I think most stations in major markets were. But the money was good. I mean, I was 20, how old was I? Four, something like that. I could live comfortably downtown Chicago in a gold, on the Gold Coast in a two-bedroom apartment. So, no, it wasn't Howard Stern, but it was plenty for the time. Let's talk about the skits that you did that came from your mind or your producers and that you made famous. And I'm going to run through a couple of them. And will you just give me a little synopsis of what they actually entailed? Sure. Let's start with Make a Date with the Watergate. Make a Date with the Watergate was my attempt at making a quote-unquote parody record of Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed. One of the bits that I had on the air during that time was that I did a Nixon imitation. And the idea would be that it would be Nixon doing these new words to the song that I, that uh, Lou Reed wrote. And uh, Alan Rosen, the production engineer, and I got together and he figured out a way to edit the existing record of Walking the Wild Side and actually make a music bed to do this thing over. And I did. And it was very, very successful. It also became a bit controversial within the confines of ABC because the WLS management came to me and said, you can't play that on the air anymore. And I said, why not? And they said, ABC has a television station in Florida that's up for a license renewal. And we think this might be too critical of the president and it could sway the FCC. I'm like, you're kidding me. They said, no. I said, okay. So that went away for a while. But then I guess the coast cleared. I don't remember exactly the situation, but it came back on the air. The station printed 10,000 45 RPM records with my name misspelled as John Records Loudecker. So they had these teeny tiny sticky things with my real name on it. And I remember people sitting around sticking the name on each side of this ridiculous 45 RPM record. That was a day that, you know, if you did a political joke or a political parody or satire, nobody tried to shoot you. It was pretty much accepted entertainment. There were Nixon imitations. There had been Kennedy imitations. uh, There were Jimmy Carter imitations. It just wasn't the same kind of climate that it is today. I wouldn't do it today. 
When I started talking to my most recent co-host, we worked together for 10 years. We talked about Chicago radio. Of course, your name came up and Boogie Check was the first thing he mentioned. He grew up listening to you. Tell me exactly what that was. Radio stations like WLS repeated songs over and over again. And for the top five records on the survey that week, there was a corresponding 90-minute countdown timer on each song. So when the light came on for that song to be played, you played it, and then the timer reset itself. So we're repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating, and I was bored. And the term let's boogie was a cliche at the time, and my main competitor at WCFL was using it sort of as his signature phrase, let's boogie. And I have no idea, Elizabeth, where this all came from, because there was no planning, no nothing. I just decided to check people's boogie, whatever the hell that meant. (laughs) And I started answering the phone at night, live on WLS, which other than requests or dedications, and many of those were pre-recorded, that there were live phone calls on the air on AM rock stations, and certainly phone calls that had nothing to do with music, or anything for that matter. The nighttime numbers for teenagers were gigantic. And so if I I say the lines are open, they're open. And I just started answering them on the air. And once it sort of caught on that these kids were live and there was no delay, because no one had one yet, they said fuck on the air a lot. Uh, and uh, and that made it. <laughs> hey, do you hear last night they said fuck on WLS? As I remember it, the FCC's ruling on this was you, you had to quote unquote try as, to the best of your ability to not let obscenities on the air. Well, hello. Once it's on the air, it's on the air. I didn't know the kid's going to swear. So then, the engineering department devised a tape loop delay. It turned out, I did not know, that with my kind of personality and attention deficit disorder or whatever the hell you want to call it, something happening at a really fast pace, boom, 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 which is the way I went up and down the telephones, turned into this huge thing. And it was like ping pong. You know, I'd go, you're on the air, and then they'd throw something at me, and then I'd throw it back at them, and then on to the next one. It was like boing, 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 back and forth. And I was um, mean, I wouldn't say mean, but I could be abrupt. And it became so popular that WLS had a jingle company record jingles to, you know, get, to get in and out of the, uh, the bit. And the nighttime ratings were gigantic. And I didn't plan on doing this at all. And this just happened because I was bored. And I didn't even know what it was. In fact, there really is no checking of anybody's boogie. It's just going back on the phone, back and forth on the phones at a pretty rapid rate. And in this case, it was exclusively young people, anywhere from junior high school all the way through, let's say, college, calling the station at night. There was no shortage of 
material coming in, so to speak. Now, flash forward, you spent time in Cleveland, but you came back to Chicago in 1993, and you started a 10-year run at Oldies 104.3 WJMK. You were the morning drive anchor until 2003. I have to mention Rick Kempfer here, your producer, because your your show received the Achievement in Radio Award of Best Morning Show in Chicago in 97, yeah. and Radio and Records Award of Best Oldies Morning Show in America in 2001 and 2002. Tell me a little bit about what type of prep goes into a radio show in that kind of highly competitive market? Well, there's the key. It's the people that you're working with. That's what it's all about. The morning show on any radio station is the premier slot, and it comes with the most freedom, and it also comes with the most criticism, the most money, the most pressure, you name it. I had a a staff. You know, I had Rick Kiffer was a producer. Then Vince Argento was what we would call a technical producer in charge of running controls and editing and things like that. Richard Cantu was the news person. I think there were three traffic reporters during that time. We would spend hours, whatever needed to be done, to try to concoct some new thing to do or something that we thought would be entertaining. And as long as the ratings held up, that was allowed. But boy, if... uh, they took a dip. They clamped on like crazy and go, you got to play this many records an hour and stuff like that. And that went on off and on for 10 years. Let's talk about when you were elected to the National Radio Hall of Fame. That was pretty recently, 2017. Describe what it was like being informed of that honor and what the award ceremony itself was like. Flabbergasted, humbled, excited. And then this was at the Museum of Broadcast Communications in downtown Chicago. And Bob Surratt, a good friend of mine who I'd worked with for years, was going to introduce me. And so I got up there and I held up my prepared remarks and went, hey, look, show prep. And there wasn't a sound. And I'm like, who are these people? (laughs) So I talked to Bob afterwards. And he goes, yeah, it's very weird. And then we sort of figured out that the people in attendance were mostly sales and management. I think the only other air personalities that were there were the ones that were being inducted. It set off an alarm when I held up the show prep and got no response. I mean, anybody that's in radio knows what show prep is, especially if you're doing a morning show. There are even companies in the United States that provide radio shows with prep services that have audio clips and allegedly jokes and news types, human interest stories, entertainment stories that they use on the air. So holding up a few pieces of paper, supposedly at a radio Hall of Fame, and going show prep and having nothing happen. So that was a little strange. And then Dave Ramsey is the host, and he's going to introduce me. And he goes, huh, they say that records is your middle name? And I'm like... You fucking idiot. Do you ever read anything before you get up there? I mean, who are you? And why are you here? But I had a great time. I had a great, great time. My wife was there, and my daughter Amy, and her boyfriend at the time, Bradley Whitford. It was fun. Before I let you go, I've got a couple more questions. Now that you've retired from radio, that happened in 2015. Are you not officially retired? uh, Not in my mind, no. I left the last job because it was too restrictive, too boring. Nothing was allowed. wasn't any fun. And I said, forget it. But when you do that, 
I think there's an assumption that, oh, he's retired since I didn't have a job to go to at the time. But that's not the case. I am doing a radio program out here in Michigan City, Indiana, uh, once a week with a friend of mine named Mike Dempsey, and didn't really want to get into it at first because I didn't want to get into the whole radio stress level again. But as it turns out, we get to do whatever we want and get to sing whatever we want. So once a week, it's a very loose, makes a tiny bit of money radio program. Our company is called It's a Feeling Not a Format Incorporated, which means our format is whatever we feel. So whatever we feel like doing, that's what we're going to do. And that could be anything. It could be talk. It could be comedy records. It could be the hits. It could be oldies. It could be anything. And it's totally unpredictable. No constraints. None. None other than the FCC, yeah. Before I let you go, you mentioned your daughters, uh, writer Tracy Landecker, actress Amy Landecker, and Amy, and now her husband, Bradley Whitford, famous among other roles for The West Wing. Is it odd being the father-in-law of a famous actor? <laughs> no, I guess is the short answer. Tell me a story about Bradley Whitford that we wouldn't know. What a good question. He has two rescue dogs, a chihuahua named Izzy and a boxer, and he dotes on them. The first time I went to his house, I knew that this was going to be a guy I liked because, you know, you have these preconceived notions of Hollywood, blah, blah, blah. Well, in the TV room, so to speak, which is right off the kitchen, the furniture had like rips in it and blankets over it because that's where the dogs always go. And I'm like, ah, okay. He's just somebody who is famous to a certain degree and that's what he's supposed to be. I follow him on Twitter. He also hates our current administration. Oh boy, what an understatement. I guess it's a little bit strange being the father-in-law of somebody who's got some notoriety, but you know, I haven't exercised it a lot either. I haven't gone around Hollywood going, hey, how you doing? (laughs) I'm uh, Bradley Whitford's father-in-law. Before I let you go... Your autobiography, Records Truly is His Middle Name, is available at Eckhart Press, thanks to, of course, Rick Kempfer again. I have to ask, what will we find out about you that we didn't learn today? Something a little salacious. Tell me. Oh, my God. Too many things. All right, name one. Okay, there's a shortage of toilet paper right now. (laughs) Allegedly, right? Yeah. So there's a story in there that goes back a long way into Germany, where my parents were from. my, My dad was from, not my mother. There is a, I guess, sort of a family reunion meeting in a town, and the notes of lineage, who came from who, came from who, were written down on some paper, and his uncle or cousin took that with him and got on a train to go back to Berlin and went to the bathroom, and guess what? There was no toilet paper. So what did he use? The very paper that he wrote out about our family's ancestry, and it was lost forever. That's amazing. (laughs) Thank you for listening to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. John Records Landecker, it has been such an honor having you on today. Thank you so much. Anytime. Great to talk to you. 